Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, how should Joe Biden deal with Vladimir Putin? You might remember the powerful testimony of the woman from the northeast of England who was key in Donald Trump's first impeachment trial, which turned on alleged Russian interference in the 2016 election. Fiona Hill is a foremost expert on modern Russia. She's advised US presidents on how to deal with the Moscow strongman Vladimir Putin. She oversaw Russia at the US National Security Council and she was deputy assistant to President Trump as he tried to warm up relations with Moscow. But given the former American president's denial of Russian meddling in the 2016 election and all that followed from that, was taking the job a good idea? And what did she learn from her time working on superpower relations in the Trump era? Today, as a new president puts his mark on dealings with the wider world and a former superpower enemy, what might better relations with the Kremlin look like? And what will happen after Vladimir Putin finally goes? We'll also hear the extraordinary story of her brush with a Russian poisoning. And on the lighter side, what might Fiona and I have in common? You might have to wait till the end to find out. Fiona Hill, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thanks so much, Anne. Great to be here. You've been in many jobs that have got you in the room with world leaders because of your Russia expertise. You've also been to briefings with Vladimir Putin himself, who sees relatively few Westerners. On a scale of one to ten, how would you describe the seriousness of the risk posed by Russia and the poor relations with the US? Well, I would put it around as a, a, a nine on a kind of a sort of an average risk right now. But I think the risk is very different from what it used to be. I think Russia has moved from being, um, although it still remains this, a conventional nuclear threat to a threat in cyberspace and also, quite frankly, a threat to the cohesion of uh, Western uh, democracies. And it's not a threat in the fact that it has generated many of the problems that uh, we're facing today, in fact, quite the contrary. But it's a threat in the fact that it seems determined, or certainly the uh, Russian intelligence services seem to be determined to exploit those weaknesses. And we've seen that they can do that very effectively, especially in the intervention in the uh, US presidential election in 2016. Yeah, it seems a very high rating. If you'd asked me, I'd have thought you'd have put it lower. No, but I'm just trying to basically make the point here that Russia has the capacity and the capability and unfortunately the willingness to really take action in the way that other countries do not. Because I don't see that this is like the um, old style conventional and even the nuclear standoff, even though, of course, Russia still has the nuclear arsenal that is an existential threat. 
but it's the nature of this sort of pernicious, insidious threat that's always lurking behind the scenes. Now, does that mean to say that it will stay at that level? No, but I think we've got ourselves to a point of rather acute confrontation that we need to address rather than a kind of chronic state at this moment. A confrontation we need to address and a new president, a new administration. What should be their outlook and what's the to-do terms on the relationship with Russia? We've heard Joe Biden saying this is going to get serious now. It's not going to be the way it was with that slightly on-off approach of Donald Trump. But do you have a clear idea what should be done? Well, first of all, I think we have to have an assessment of where we want the relationship to be and what's really realistic. Why is Russia this threat is also a question. Because you see Vladimir Putin, who has been up until now pretty unassailed in his position as Russian president. He just seemed to quite successfully, notwithstanding the problems of COVID and uh, the issues that all of us are dealing with right now during the pandemic, but seemed to quite successfully navigate through this past year in terms of getting an amendment to the Russian constitution that would enable him in theory to stay in the presidency till 2036. He hasn't got any really serious opposition or hasn't had until now. However, we're seeing with Alexei Navalny and the way that uh, the Russian government responded to this means that they feel deeply threatened internally by the changes in the domestic situation. And externally, in theory, of course, Russia also doesn't have an enemy. The United States is not Russia's geopolitical enemy, even though you know we, we may be you know, seeming to be in that kind of state. It's not that the United States has any kind of predatory interest in Russian territory. The United States doesn't even really have that much of an interest in usurping or undermining Russia's international position. And the United States is not the dominant global power that it was previously. We see a rising China. And China at this particular juncture is not a threat to Russia, although it could be down the lines. So in actual fact, it seems that Russia has a pretty good internal and geopolitical position, if you're just looking at it objectively. And yet they certainly feel that they do not. And I think that that's what we have to unpack, first of all, is why does Russia continue to see the United States as a threat? Because it's that perception and that assessment on the Russians' part that the United States is still the main problem for Russia that's really provoking and propelling Russia to take all of these really hostile actions against the United States and the West writ large. And then the question is, what does the United States want out of this? I mean, I think that the basic thing the United States wants to have is a managed relationship with Russia, one that's not just careening from crisis to confrontation and back again. Jake Sullivan is the new national security chief. I'm wondering if you think that there is enough Russia expertise in the Biden cabinet, at least on what we know so far. I mean, did you think of of going back into an administration? Well, first of all, I wasn't asked. And second, no, I didn't, because I'm actually quite relieved not to have to do this again. I, I felt that, you know, what I did the first time around was under emergency circumstances. And I was surprised to be asked and I felt that I needed to really step up to do something. But I also saw, you know, through the period that I was there, that taking, you know, the sort of conventional old time approach to Russia isn't going to be sufficient. Now, yes, they do have plenty of expertise. If Tori Newland goes through the confirmation process, I mean, Tori Newland is a one woman kind of expert on all kinds of things from Russia to Europe. I mean, there's Wendy Sherman, you know, in the number two position, Anthony Blinken himself, Tony Blinken. They've all, you know, had plenty of experience in dealing with Russia. But the whole point is, 
we can't just take a conventional old time approach. There's no sort of going back to any kind of particularly good level set of Russian relations. Every single president who has come into office since the collapse of the Soviet Union has had this difficulty in trying to figure out what do we do with Russia. There's been constant attempts at reset, which are clearly not going to happen. Uh, constant focus on the relationship between the guy at the top and the other guy at the top, um, because, because it's always been men. And, um, you know, clearly Joe Biden has already been there, done that um, in terms of his previous positions in the Senate and also as vice president. And, you know, he was vice president during, you know, the previous attempts by the Obama administration to reset. So he's not going to attempt that. He's not going to attempt to try to change things through personal relationships with Putin which is, of course, what Trump tried and it was never going to work either. How are we going to approach this seems to be, you know, the real first order. And Russia is lashing out because of perceptions of threat, both internationally and domestically. And we have to really understand that. Let's talk about some of the characters involved. The Russian opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, lost his appeal against being jailed for violating the terms of a suspended sentence, obviously a very dubious process there around the appeal, as there was in his sentencing, and he'd been the victim of an attempted poisoning, very probably state-sanctioned. He compared Vladimir Putin to Voldemort, the evil figure from Harry Potter. Do you see Putin as Voldemort? Well... Not uh, not entirely, but I think it's a, a kind of a, a great metaphor, I mean, particularly because it begins with V anyway, and he whose name should not be spoken. There's all kinds of, you know, um, similes and metaphors and things like that that one could use. But I, I do think that there is, um, you know, a set of problems now that Putin himself faces that Navalny has really got to the heart of. First of all, he's been in power for an extraordinarily long time, either as president um, or uh, prime minister. He's now exceeded pretty much any other recent Russian leader apart from Stalin. And he clearly sees himself in many respects as an elected monarch, unassailable. And, you know, he said he's going to stay here, theoretically at least, until 2036. And even if he doesn't run for president again for those two other times that he's made it possible, he wants to be the person who chooses his successor. Now, what Navalny has done is challenge all of that. And this is what is really crucial here. In many respects, Navalny is more like Harry Potter, perhaps, than <laughs> maybe that's what he was thinking, because it's just the audacity of the challenge. Before, Navalny was not necessarily the acknowledged leader of the opposition. Putin has made him the leader of the opposition. And perhaps we shouldn't keep talking about the Harry Potter analogy, but in any case, it actually holds here too that Voldemort's attack on Harry Potter and the failed assassination attempt actually puts him into the spotlight. And that's exactly what has happened with Navalny. Do you believe that Alexei Navalny's life is still in danger? Of course. You know, Putin himself said, well, look, if we'd set out to kill him, we'd have killed him. Well, they did set out to kill him and they didn't quite succeed. And Navalny has completely and utterly revealed why. Um, this, you know, astounding first video with Bellingcat, the investigative uh, group, where they managed to get the FSB operative on the line, you know, by tricking him, uh, the internal, you know, security services into actually revealing the method with the um, uh, putting the Novichok in the lining of the underpants. I mean, it's just really rather remarkable. So they've humiliated the FSB. They've humiliated Putin. They've forced actually Putin to have to speak about Navalny because before he didn't mention Navalny's name. And it has turned Navalny into now a clear opposition figure because he survived the assassination attempt by the intervention of pilots and doctors and all kinds of people who did their jobs as he lays out. He wouldn't have survived otherwise. And he's had the audacity to come back, even though he knows that he faced a prison term and the potential of another attempt 
you know, right out of Russian literature. This could be ripped from the pages of Dostoevsky, in which the person who is standing up to the system shows unspeakable courage. He's actually basically said, I am not afraid of you. And the reason that, of course, Navalny um, was targeted for assassination and also for prison was to frighten others. And I think that this is why the threat level with Russia is so high. The Russians fear that the United States may do something under a Biden with the kind of, you know, the same group of people coming from the past who've been pretty hard on Russia. When Russia is your specialism over many years and decades, because you see a lot of changes, but you also see, I think, a difference now in the way we look at claims of attempted poisonings. So they were once treated, even a few years ago, very sceptically. There still are people who are sceptics about this, but the evidence does seem to mount uh, that, that this is a fairly concerted way of, of dealing with opposition or indeed just sending a message. I read that you felt at one point that you might have been the target of an attempted poisoning. Can you tell us about that? Well, I was basically working on Chechnya at the time, which, of course, is a pretty neurologic issue for um, the Russian government and many others. And I was in Sochi in 2002 at a meeting that was uh, basically organised by the US and the Russian Academy of Sciences. And I'd been getting a lot of warnings about backing off. This is the second war in Chechnya um, from uh, lines of inquiry that I was pursuing. There were an awful lot of very strange figures circulating around. There were definitely lots of people involved in organised crime. I was kind of unearthing a lot of information at the time. And we were meeting with members of the um, Chechen government, as well as, you know, Russian academics and many others as well. And we were in kind of bar attached to a restaurant of the hotel we were all staying in. And I was handed a drink. And, you know, I'm sure like you are, you know, in our younger days, we'd have been very mindful about being handed just randomly a drink in a bar, you know, by someone. Mm. And, you know, I took a, um, a couple of sips of the drink. It tasted weird. And I suddenly felt extraordinarily unwell. And I basically immediately kind of got up, you know, to kind of get out and go to my room and passed out in the um, elevator. I was then violently ill and I was taken off to the clinic in the hotel and given shots of adrenaline and all kinds of things. And, you know, it, it kind of presented almost like, you know, kind of a norovirus or something, but it was instantaneously after the drink. By the time I ended up getting to see a, a proper doctor, the only thing that was detectable was my liver enzymes were very high and they remained high for quite a while, which suggests that there was some kind of toxic or, you know, other substance. But this was also in a period where a lot of people were having this kind of experience, mm -hmm. unfortunately. Anna Politkovskaya on a plane, you know, with tea. Um, there was also Yuri Shekoshikin, who I'd worked with, who was poisoned. He died because he had an allergic reaction. And several other people that I um, uh, knew at the time had something happen in the same time frame. And what did this tell you? You wrote a very good book about the rise of Vladimir Putin as a co-author called Operative in the Kremlin, which went into his KGB background. But there are two views I still think of, of, of Putin probably having read too many books about him from my own. One is that he's essentially a kind of second tier KGB man who made his way through the system, found the right sort of cronies in St. Petersburg, took it from there and is basically the KGB is in the Kremlin. And the other is that, as well as possibly being the poisoner in chief, that there is something perhaps cleverer about Vladimir Putin, more kind of worthy of note than some of his detractors have claimed. Has your view changed? No, I actually already thought that there was something more worthy of note from observing him, you know, very closely. 
And just because he wasn't sort of, you know, successful in his KGB job doesn't mean that he didn't manage to successfully adapt the things that he learned there. You know, maybe he could, um, you know, be thought of as a late bloomer. Uh, but he, what he did was he adapted um, all of the skills that he had uh, learned and also the ruthlessness and, you know, the willingness to use dirty tricks. But, you know, he's obviously somebody who um, reads his briefs. Um, I have been in, you know, many um, interactions with him. And what did he make of you? I mean, how did those interactions roll? He must have, by this stage, had a very good briefing on who you were and your advanced Russian knowledge. It wasn't all that significant. I was just another woman, the middle age, you know, kind of particularly not particularly interesting, I don't think. Um, even if I had been National Intelligence Officer on a couple of those occasions at those meetings, I don't think he particularly paid a lot of attention. You know, there's a real um, strong streak of sexism and misogyny in the, in the Russian system, which, you know, one has to just accept. You're just not really all that interesting to them. You know, you're not one of the men, you're not one of the big guys, you're not real, you know, kind of in many respects. So you're not part of their circle. And that, you know, holds true in some of the other positions I've been in as well. You know, I think people underestimate people at their own peril. I certainly never underestimated him. But I do think in the terms of the government positions that I was in, later he did take me and others seriously and so it's very different when I went to meet with him in the US government um, capacity when I was at the National Security Council with um, Ambassador Bolton you know he'd already done his homework on me and others and you know he'd make these little pointed comments that made it clear that he was you know touching on a few you know things here and there that you know he knew about just to you know get your attention but I was always, you know, very impressed by the fact that for the most part, sometimes, you know, he was obviously winging it, but for the most part, he wasn't. He'd, you know, paid particular attention to his notes. He he holds an awful lot of information in his head. But you just have to remember that he has a particular worldview and a particular context in which he operates. So there are limitations. And that was one of the reasons why myself and Clifford Gaddy, my colleague at the Brookings Institution, wanted to write the book about him to explain the context in which he operates. I'm going to turn to your time, Fiona, working in the White House, if I could, for President Trump. Um, Standout moments? Well, you know, I think one has to stand back um, a little bit, um, you know, from, you know, obviously recent events have put a lot of things in, you know, a, a different light. I mean by, you know, what happened over this last year with President Trump clearly trying to stay in power. So, you know, that tends to colour an awful lot of, you know, people looking back at this period, plus two impeachments, you know, that <laughs> tends to also put things in a particular frame. And when it comes to Russia, President Trump was very much framed by a 1980s view of Russia. And Anne, you and I are the same age and we grew up in the same area in the same time frame and you decided to go and study Germany and I went to study Russia. But we were very much shaped by the war scare of the 1980s. You know, the whole idea that we might be, um, you know, basically obliterated in any kind of nuclear exchange between the US and the Soviet Union. And strangely enough, that was also the motivation for Trump for wanting to have a close relationship with Vladimir Putin. Now, this might seem absurd because there's all kinds of other things that people have brought to their perceptions of the whole Trump-Putin relationship. Back in the 1980s, President Trump wanted to get into arms control and even volunteered to be the arms control negotiator for Ronald Reagan. He obviously was probably shaped as a younger person by the Cuban Missile Crisis. We were too young for that, but, you know, he's a good 20-odd years older than we are. And so his whole idea was he wanted to finish off the arms control big set-piece negotiations of the 1980s. 
And ultimately, I think, you know, he thought that he could sit down with Putin and they might make this massive agreement that would you know, basically wrap up where we were in the 80s and maybe even lead to a, a non-nuclear world. And I remember talking to you around this time, and I know you gave great thought to whether to stay in the administration. You were working with HR McMaster, a security uh, advisor, but there was always that kind of dividing line, which is a difficult one when you're in it in the moment, is how long do you stay in an administration when you think this is fundamentally going the wrong way, not only on the Russia question? And how much do you stay because you think it's your duty to bring expertise and you know, be putting yourself in, in in the service of America in, in this case. Did that give you sleepless nights? I would always encourage everybody to think about national service no matter what. I mean, look, think about all of the people who, you know, were called up during war when you know, they had a lot of doubts about, um, you know, why the war had been declared in the first instance. So my granddad from the northeast of England signed up in World War One. He was 18 when World War One broke out and he joined up and joined the Royal Field Artillery and fought through the entire war. Did he question the war? Absolutely. But, you know, he also, you know, felt that there was a sort of a sense of duty. But I was always very mindful of, you know, thinking through here, the Russians did launch a massive attack on um, the United States cyber attack and the hacking of the election and all of the exploitation of social media and everything that they did in 2016. And I, you know, hope that I'd be able to cut through the noise of what had happened there because, of course, this created a domestic political crisis and be able to focus on the national security aspects of this and what we might be able to do to push back. And I did share the view that we ought to be able to try to do something with Russia on arms control for the 21st century. We've really got a whole risk of uh, basically the nuclear Pandora's box being opened up. So we had to find a way of stabilising this. But I did set to myself a two-year time frame because I did worry, exactly as you said, that I could become part of a problem, not a solution to anything. And I thought that that would be enough time frame, you know, to basically kind of figure out whether I could get any traction or whether I should just leave. And did you get traction with the man himself? I think at one point you said you thought he probably thought you were a note taker or, or a secretary, but that might be a bit unfair. Maybe. I was just a non-player in his world. I was a woman. I was a middle-aged, nondescript woman. I was a note taker. You know, kind of, it didn't matter that, you know, I had all this expertise. He was not interested. You seem to keep meeting that guy again and again in your life. Yeah, well, you know, it's the problem of being, you know, a woman. You know, I was once a young woman, now I'm a middle-aged woman. You know, so I'll be an old woman. It'll just be, you know, kind of a perpetual problem here. You just have to keep, you know, kind of going on and, you know, hoping that eventually you'll overcome this. But that was not my experience with everyone else. So let's put it that way. But by 2019, it became apparent that things had gone completely pear-shaped and that the whole, you know, domestic politics that was leading up to what became the impeachment um, was already in play. And I was naive about the domestic politics. I'm not a political person in the sense of I am, of course, politically active and I think about politics, but I'm not partisan. And I then discovered just how dirty US domestic politics could be. And frankly, it was like the Kremlin... And I had knew more about what was happening in the Kremlin than I did in the immediate circles around the White House. And that was a wake up call. And it became apparent, even though I stayed on a bit longer than the, you know, I ended up being two and a half years, essentially, you know, whereas I was trying to do the kind of handoff in a smooth way that I'd already overstayed, not just my welcome, but, you know, perhaps, you know, what had been really prudent from what I'd set out to do at the beginning. And it became apparent that, you know, the kind of wheels were off the bus, um, you know, by early 2019. 
And that's, I wanted to, that you brought me very neatly to something I wanted to ask towards the end of our, our conversation. As a, a guest of ours, Heather Cox Richardson, historian, said a few weeks ago, she, she was really great on history as the, the long lens to clarify the times we're living in. And she said, well, I'm a prophet of the past when I asked for her predictions, which I thought was a great phrase. But I'm going to ask you to be a bit more of a prophet of the future. How does the Putin era end? Yeah. Well, there are many ways in which he could end. First of all, he's the wild card in the system. So he could die. And then it'll end in terms of him, you know, physically. But, you know, presumably, you know, there's a lot of people already been circling around that wagon, you know, trying to kind of figure out, you know, how they get themselves into the succession game. And theoretically, there is a succession in which it's handed off to the prime minister. So that's Mr. Mishustin at the moment. So just like in any system, there is a... Um, you know, a kind of a fail-safe. Do you see a rising star, even if it's a dark star, who would succeed? They've been testing a number out, and this is kind of, you know, the way that Putin himself rose to the top. Um, you know, when uh, Yeltsin, people thought that Yeltsin's days were numbered and they wanted to basically move him out the way before he died in office because he'd already died during the 1996 re-election campaign when he had a massive heart attack and had to be essentially revived through massive open heart surgery all behind the scenes. And so there was a kind of an imperative there to find a successor. And Putin was one of many that was tried out. Nimtsov, of course, was tried out, as were many others in the roles of deputy prime minister or prime minister. And Putin was the last man standing in the end. And they thought they could manipulate him and they couldn't. So clearly, Putin has Operation Successor in mind. But the reason he wanted more time on the clock was because he clearly hasn't got someone in place that he can trust because he wants to make sure that if he leaves the scene into a retirement in his 80s or before his 80s, that he's well protected. And, you know, would Vladimir Putin want to disappear from the scene entirely? It seems more that he might want to get into this sort of role that we see and the case of Nur Sultan Nazarbayev in Kazakhstan, who sort of blazed that trail for being still the dear leader emeritus who put his person and Mr. Takayev, uh, President Takayev, in place. You know, they're kind of grappling with a, how do you do this? But I do think that, you know, there's another way at which it could end, because Alexei Navalny has emboldened people. And, you know, if there starts to be more protests um, or the continuation of protests across the entire country, there could be someone around Vladimir Putin who says, look, you're losing your grip. And, you know, kind of the end should come sooner rather than later. And a jostling for power, which is exactly what he tried to uh, preempt. Have you got a, a Russian saying for this? I think what well, we, we haven't re- reflected in our conversation because, of course, these are very serious matters and there is a lot of threat and danger in the world. But we both have a, a love and an affinity, I think, for, for Russia, for the Russian language and from some of the experiences which you could really only uh, have in, in Russia. I just love those sort of slightly mad proverbs or mottos. Have you got one? Fits the moment. I always kind of love the, um, you know, um, the aphorisms of Victor Chernomerdin. We hope for the best, but it turned out as usual. And he's absolutely right, you know, kind of, you always hope for the best, it turns out as usual. In other words, you know, another screw up. It was very funny. He was very, very wry, wasn't he? He's was a gloomy statesman. You've mentioned tantalisingly a couple of uh, times along the way where we were discussing great affairs of state that we have a bit of a shared childhood, don't we? Or at least teenage years, which we discovered many years later when we we met again on a a show, uh, that we both grew up in County Durham. We both went to 
very ordinary state schools in uh, County Durham, or public schools, as you'd say, in the US. And I ended up on a trajectory that took me towards Germany as a specialist. You ended up as an expert on Russia. What do you remember of when we first met? Well, we were on a um, County Durham exchange uh, to Tübingen in in, uh, Baden-Württemberg in Germany. And um, I think we both benefited from the fact that um, County Durham, in spite of, you know, all of its sort of setbacks in the time when we were teenagers in the 1980s, which were considerable because all of the industry was closing down, um, County Durham retained a really good cultural and education budget. And they um, really invested a lot of time and effort and money into these exchanges mm. through town twinning, sister cities, and these formal arrangements with a range of places, particularly university towns. I think we were 14 or 15 looking at the pictures. We're still quite sort of gawky. 13 or 14, yeah. But it was, um, you know, basically a real eye-opener. Totally. Just these efforts to reconcile Europe, because it was like the end of the 70s, after the UK joined with the EU. And hearing the stories from my host family, they'd actually gone through the firebombing of Frankfurt, you know, by the, obviously the Allied uh, forces. And their whole history and the stories, and they took us to um, um, Sachsenhausen, the concentration camp that was near um, Stuttgart. But it was just this kind of realisation of just this weight of history. And also we did talk about, you know, the division between East and West Germany, and there was a lot of concern in the, you know, the family that I was there too, about mm-hmm. the a kind of a, an outbreak of nuclear war between the Soviet Union and the United States. You know, but the family I stayed with were pacifists. They were part of a larger ecological group. But one of uh, the um, family had been forced into the Nazi party during the war because they worked in construction. And they actually worked on the Reichstag rebuilding and they were all forced to become party members. And that had been very painful, you know, kind of for the family, the whole experience. So anyway, it was just a totally fascinating and, you know, it was very impressionable. I think that's what really set me off onto the whole pursuit of international relations. And I did get in my mind there about wanting to study Russian, but Russian wasn't available at my school in uh, County Durham. But later, County Durham paid for me, you know, full grant to go to um, University of St Andrews to study Russian. But, you know, it's a great, it really is something I think listeners will send in their, their own recollections of what languages have done for you, but how languages can just be such an extraordinary kind of vector through life and into areas of interest. And, you know, I'm sure you do the same as the more we can advocate for it, the modern languages being available to pupils, not only in, in places where it's a given that people have access to that. It, it worries me a lot that we are perhaps beginning to, to leave that behind and that this is becoming perhaps something that's less available to to, to students than it should be. No, I totally agree. And, um, you know, I I really hope that schools retain at least one language for um, students to study. Um, I do think a national promotion of languages, because the UK is going to find itself cut off, you know, post-Brexit in many respects. And this language is still going to be important, you know, particularly as a global, you know, trading power and trying to get everybody to at least, you know, take language for a few years in school and think about school exchanges. It should be said that also the one thing we can definitely do together, but we probably would need a large glass of wine first, is we can do pretty good Northwest Durham dialect, can't we? (laughs) (laughs) We might lose some lessons along the way. Fiona Hill, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you so much, Anne. It's been a real pleasure. And it's really nice, you know, to know that we can maintain that connection ever since we were 13. 
particularly nice for me to catch up with someone I knew long ago when we were first taking our faltering steps learning modern languages. So are you worried, like Fiona Hill, about the demise of foreign language teaching for English-speaking students? What do we gain from mastering another language or perhaps just another dialect? You can hear more of my conversation with Fiona Hill on our sister podcast, Checks and Balance, tomorrow. There she'll be answering the question in depth of how Biden should handle the nuclear threat from Russia. It's part of a programme where John Priddo, the host, is looking at Biden's plan to re-engage with the world. Do take a listen. But from me, Anne McElvoy in London, this is The Economist. The producer today was Rosie Pye. <laughs>